As we come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now come to your word and pray that you would focus our attention. I trust that we've been focused in our worship as we've come into this place. We've been engaged with you. Now, as we continue to worship by listening, by thinking together, that you would focus us still. May your word have its perfect work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, please. I want to read beginning in chapter 1, beginning with verse 12 uh, to verse 22. Um, You know what? I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to read a bit further. So 2 Corinthians, please, and chapter 1. This is the word of God. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, So that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to uh, visit you on my way to Macedonia. And to come back to you from Macedonia. And have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? I did say yes, yes and no, no at the same time. As surely as God is faithful. Our word to you has not been yes and no. For the son of God. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us And given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. We won't get to all that this week. I thought we were until yesterday. And when I went to bed, Karen says, you, you look like you're not happy. And I said, well, I think I have two or three sermons for tomorrow. We'll have to sort them out when we get there. 
So here we go. But Paul, as I mentioned in the last couple of times in Second Corinthians, Paul has the unhappy task of defending his apostleship, or really we might say his calling. Now, he doesn't do that out of pride of position. He, he doesn't do that to, to pull rank, if you will, so that he can get them to do what he commands. He, he doesn't do that for financial gain. He, he does it because it's his calling. Notice how he introduces himself as the letter begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He knows who he is. He knows his calling. And he knows because that is his calling that he has the gospel. It's the gospel that, that is the gospel that all the apostles uh, had, had, had preached and proclaimed. And so he knows he has it. He also knows that there are those in Corinth in that day who uh, are, are preaching another gospel that are casting aspersions on Paul's life, saying he suffers too much, for instance. And if he really was an apostle, why would he suffer so much? And, and, and Paul is saying, well, this is the lot of apostles to suffer. In fact, there's affliction in the world. In fact, we all face the sufferings of Christ. And, and so don't be deceived by them. So, so Paul realizes that if there's any sense in which they think that he's an imposter, any sense in which they think he's even deceiving them, any sense in which that he's been disingenuous, any sense in which they can't trust his motive, then he has to come and say, no, 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 I really am an apostle. And here's why. And and you needed to trust the gospel that I proclaim, that I preach. So that's why he's taking pains throughout this letter to defend his calling among them, to defend his apostleship so that he's not discredited, so that the gospel is not discounted. All right. So that's why he's doing it. And so he's laying it out to them. We, we mentioned uh, last Sunday that, that he did have to defend himself um, against accusations that uh, his sufferings were inconsistent with being an apostle. So he made various claims. He made the claim that, that we all suffer affliction. In fact, we all participate in the sufferings of Christ if we're a follower of Jesus, you see. And so he says that's not inconsistent with even being a Christian, let alone an apostle. And he said, even then, he said, I suffer for your sake. Not in the way Christ suffered in the sense of an atoning sacrifice for sin. But when I suffer, I suffer so that... I may be, Paul may be comforted, encouraged, and strengthened by God so that when they suffer, he can pass that comfort, that encouragement along to them. In fact, that's as they suffer, they can pass that encouragement along, along to one another. And he said, so even in my suffering, I do it for your good. And now he comes And he has to to, to face these accusations that he's been insincere, that he's been fickle, that he's been confusing, that he's had multiple agendas and hidden agendas with which he hasn't shared with them. And and he's he's kind of been unscrupulous in his dealings, in his dealings with them. Um, And they, they revolve around, interestingly enough, his travel plans. Uh, pedestrian, no pun intended, is that. I mean, how, how common is that? I mean, his, they get upset with him about his travel plans. And it's, it's, it's difficult, as you know, as we read through these letters and we read through the history of the church in Acts and, and other pieces, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to piece together all the elements. But what we have revealed to us in First and Second Corinthians is that Paul had at least two travel plans 
of which they knew, and he pursued, it seems, a third one. Uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul lays out travel plans, goes something like this. I'm going to, to uh, travel to Macedonia, uh, cities in Macedonia. I'm going to take up collection there for the saints in Jerusalem who are suffering. And then I'm going to come visit you and I'm going to spend the winter with you. And I'm going to gather your collection as well. And then you're going to send me off, maybe send uh, someone with me, maybe an envoy, maybe a convoy. Maybe you're going to send someone with me uh, to Jerusalem and I'm going to deliver uh, the, the money there. That's, that's his first plan. Well, we see here that there was another plan that came afoot as well in, in, uh, in, in, in verse 15. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So you get the sense, he says, well, I'm going to go to you first and that'll be a treat, you know. Uh, I'll bring the grace of God with me. As he shares in various places, a gift to you, a gift from God. Um, and his preaching and his presence and, and the, the spirit of work through him. So I'm going to bring you, so that's, they make them happy. And, then, and then, then I'll go to Macedonia and then I'm coming back. So I'll get to see you twice. Uh, and that isn't what happened either, it, it appears. Because again, as we try to piece these things, piece these things together, it appears that, that, that Paul sent Timothy to visit Corinth. He could have taken the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Truly, it's probably the second letter he wrote to them. Uh, and, and he receives some reports back that there's some difficulties there. So then we learn that Paul actually visits Corinth and he makes a painful visit, he calls it. It just broke his heart to see what was going on. And he had to leave Corinth with issues unresolved. And, and so, so then he has to write to them a, what he calls a severe letter, uh, a letter calling them to repentance. And he sends Titus, it appears, with it. And, and, and so Titus goes there and Paul's anxious, Paul's concerned how they're going to receive this letter. And so he goes, Paul then leaves Ephesus and he goes to Troas in hopes of, 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 of finding Titus there. Maybe they had a plan. I'll, I'll leave Corinth, I'll meet you in Troas. And then if I, I, I don't show up in Troas, then I'll meet you in, in the city in Macedonia. And so, so Paul doesn't find uh, Titus in Troas. So, so he goes to Macedonia, he's there. And he's relieved. It's a sort of a mixed report. Some good, some bad. And so it appears from there he writes this letter. We have Second Corinthians. And, and it goes, gets back to, back to them. And, and so they're confused. What's going on? Paul, you said you're going to do this. And then you said you're going to do that. And, and, and you don't do that. And so they begin to cast aspersions uh, on him and, and, uh, and assign motives, bad motives, to Paul that, that, uh, that, that he's, he's duplicitous as opposed to Working with simplicity, duplicity. Simplicity means I'm single-minded. I have one agenda, and my agenda is to glorify God. My agenda is to do good for you, and thus glorify God. So that's that would, you know that's how he would say, no, I, I came with simplicity, or um, didn't have two agendas with godly sincerities. Yeah, I, I was sincere in every travel plan I laid out. I, I I was sincere about that. That's exactly what my desires were. I thought at the time that would be what was good, but then I realized circumstances changed. I realized no, there's a better plan. So I I simply took it. But I was sincere about each one. It wasn't that I was trying to to to, to bait and switch you in some kind of way. I wasn't with earthly wisdom. I wasn't trying to trick you. I wasn't trying to manipulate you. I wasn't trying to make myself look good in your eyes. Or or, or, or somehow control you. It wasn't, wasn't that. I wasn't being selfish. Um, and, and the letter I wrote that you say is confusing isn't confusing at all. Read it again. 
I wasn't, there isn't any hidden meanings here. I wasn't trying to, to, to blur anything. I wasn't trying to obscure anything. I, I, I don't, I don't have any, any, any hidden meanings here. You, you sort of got it. You read it the first time. You got it right. That's exactly what I was planning at that time. But, but circumstances changed. And so, so, so read it again. Understand. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to trick you in this. You can only, you get the sense that, that others would say, is Paul really, does he really know the will of God? I mean, he, he can't even get his travel plans right. Now, as trivial as that is, you would think that perhaps rather than criticizing about his, 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 his travel plans, that they would, they would simply send him a note and say, hey, we're really sorry you can't come. We're going to miss you, Paul. I mean, you founded our church. You're the one who proclaimed the gospel to you. If it wouldn't have been for you and, and, the, and, and the way that God works, we wouldn't know any of this. And so, so, oh, man, you can't come. We're really sorry about that. You'd think that would be their response <laughs> rather than criticizing and saying, oh, you fickle guy. I know you risked your life to bring the gospel to us, but really. I mean, you know, you can't get your travel plans right. You keep changing them. Uh, keep changing them uh, on us. As I read that, I began to think, isn't that like us, though? And we don't understand another person. We don't uh, maybe even agree with them, perhaps. But isn't the tendency for us to assign to them improper motives? Rather than give them the benefit of the doubt, rather than think the best, isn't, isn't that simply just what, at least in my generation, we used to call human nature? Isn't that just the way we are? Isn't that, isn't that just our tendency to think the worst of people we don't understand? To think the worst of people who disappoint us? Think the worst of all of that. In 1894, this is getting modern for me. In 1894, a theologian named James Denny spoke to this passage. Let me read you a piece of what he said. He said, a passage like this, and there are many like it in St. Paul, have something in it humiliating. Is it not a disgrace to human nature that a man so open, so truthful, so brave should be put to his defense on a charge of underhanded dealing. Ought not somebody to have been deeply ashamed for bringing this shame on the apostle? Now, let us be very careful how we impute or assign motives to others, especially those in public office, even in the church. There is that in all our hearts which is hostile to them and would not be grieved to see them degraded a little. And is that, and nothing else, which supplies bad motives for their good actions and puts an ambiguous face on their simplest behavior. Deceit, says Solomon, is in the heart of them that imagine evil. It is our own selves that we condemn most surely when we pass our bad sentence upon others. Get the drift of that? I think we know what he's saying. Now, it might be that some of you are sitting there thinking, come on, Bill, what's up? If you're going to talk about this, there must be something brewing that, uh, that, uh, that you want to talk to us about, criticizing and imputing bad motives. 
Well, of course, if you're thinking that, you're proving his point. Right? <laughs> gotcha. Sorry, I was a little... Okay, you know, I did lead you to that. But, but isn't it true? I mean, isn't that... I mean, I know, when I was writing this, I'm thinking... I'm afraid they're going to think that I have some agenda here that I'm speaking to. And, and in my defense, if I could follow after the apostle, uh, let me make three points. One is that uh, I took up 2 Corinthians for the reasons I mentioned uh, a number of weeks ago. Uh, two, we finished verse 11, and so I'm on verse 12 now. And so this seems to be what we need, what we really need uh uh, uh, to talk about and if there's any criticism of me you can say bill you preached this sermon 17 years ago now if you can come up with that god bless you because i couldn't until the middle of yesterday i said did i ever preach second corinthians oh here we go but uh now now i have to confess the reason i realized that we might have two or three sermons here today that that sermon transcribed was about 12 pages the average one for me is eight the average one for most pastors is six so that was especially long i must have been more confident in those days uh even still but um so 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 i've made these points before i didn't use this quote from james denny because i just found it uh, recently in, in some other studies but but uh so i, I don't have a a hidden agenda. In fact, if you don't think this manipulative of me, I would say that one of the reasons, and I've said this before, both to you and about you in other places, that I think that if we've been enabled to prosper in any fashion at all as a church over the last quarter of a century or so, it's because this doesn't happen very much at all among us. I live in the leaders of our church and I think all of us together live in the happy place of trust and since I've been here all these years you must be gracious. You must have overlooked. You, You must have not imputed false motives to some things which I've perhaps done and said that have been confusing here, wondering why did he do that? Or why isn't he doing this? Or why aren't we? And yet I, that generally doesn't occur. And that is a blessing. In fact, that's his next point, if I can continue on reading from this theologian. He says, the immediate results of imputing motives, that is, a situation and then say, well, this is why. Imputing motives and putting a sinister interpretation on actions is that mutual confidence is destroyed. And mutual confidence is the very element and atmosphere in which any spiritual good can be done. In other words, the only way that we can do any spiritual good as a company of people is, is if there is mutual confidence, trust, respect, all that. Unless a minister and his congregation recognize each other as in the main what they profess to be, their relation is destitute of spiritual reality. It may be an infinite weariness or an infinite torment. It can never be a comfort or delight on one side or the other. Isn't that true? He goes on to make other applications. Notice, he says, 
What would a family be without the mutual confidence of husband and wife, of parents and children? No, we know. We know what it would be because we've experienced it in our lives. And it isn't pleasant, it isn't good when there isn't a mutual confidence in each other and our position with each other. When there's fear that one is going to impute false motives and bad motives about what we're thinking or about what we're doing. You know, we live in that shadow that life is very unpleasant, wearisome. What a state, what is a state worth for any of the ideal ends for which a state exists? If those who represented to the world have no instinctive sympathy with, the, with general life, and if the collective conscience regards the leaders from a distance with dislike or distrust. I think we know what that is, right? Well, think about it. And while on the one hand, it may make us feel good to vent all of that and to think that and may make us look really smart in the eyes of others, in the long run, what does it do to us collectively? Now, obviously, both in a family and a church, uh, we, there's sin and we need to point it out and we need to deal with it. But, but we need to deal with it straight up, not by imputing motives that may not be there. And what is the pastor relation worth? If instead of mutual cordiality, openness, readiness to believe and to hope the best, instead of mutual intercession and thanksgiving, of mutual rejoicing in each other, there is suspicion, reserve, insinuation, coldness, a grudging recognition of what it is impossible to deny, a willingness to shake the head and and to make mischief. What an experience of life we see. What a final appreciation of the best thing in that utterance of St. John who said, Beloved, let us love one another. All that is good, all that is glory and joy is summarily comprehended in that. What are you saying? Is that we need to live, and I think we do, live with a presumption of holiness in one another. Well, it's not a naive presumption, but this sense of thinking the best. You know, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, he said, love believes all. Again, not naively, but love desires to believe the best. That's our first instinct in love. Uh, In fact, love so loves that when love finds out that there's been a wrong motive or a wrong action, love's surprised. Love's hurt. I would hope that your first response when someone comes to you about a friend and they say of that friend something that's negative, a false motive, and you know that friend, I hope your first instinct really is to defend them. I remember one time I was in line at a grocery store and uh, I was second, which is always aggravating to me. I was second and the other person in front of me had a long, you know, I always get in the wrong line, long thing. And then they started a conversation with the clerk and the conversation was about a mutual friend. And the one in line was saying to the clerk about how, how you know, about this friend, about how 
terrible she was and what she had done and, and, and why she had done it. And she's always like that and so forth and so on. And then the clerk actually defended the friend. And I'm thinking, I want that person, that clerk, to be my friend. Because I was ready to hang this person that she was talking about. I was like, oh, man. You know, I'm, I'm like living the days of our lives. I mean, I think this is, you know, it's finally interesting to be in line, you know. And, 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 but, but I, I said, I want that person to be my friend. I don't know if this is true or not. But her first instinct was to be gracious, you see. And, and when we think about this church in Paul, we go, how can you, how can you do that? How can you? Can you do that? And, and you see what grounds us as, as being able to do that is, is the experience ourselves of the grace of God. To have experienced ourselves the grace of God. To know that what I have, I don't deserve to have. To know that my motives are, have been impure in the course of my life. My actions been sinful in the course of my life. Yet God in Jesus accepts me, receives me, forgives me, reconciles me to himself, treats me as one of his very own, treats me as if I've never sinned, treats me as one who is righteous. And, and in that sense, treat, thinks the best. If, if God is for us, who can be against us, the scripture says. Who, who intercedes for us, but Jesus who died for us. And the accusation comes before us to God. Jesus intercepts. He says, no, that one's mine. That person belongs to me. They've been forgiven. Don't, don't pour your wrath upon them. Or discipline them if they're your child and they're your child. But, but, but don't pour your wrath upon them. They belong to me. He defends us. Jesus defends us. Jesus is the clerk in the grocery store when bad things are said about us. It's Jesus who takes up our cause. It's, and when we know that, you see. And he says, now in the midst of, of our time together. As, as you Deal with leadership, leadership with you as we walk this way with each other. He says, that's to be the attitude. Not naively, we have to deal with sin. We all sin, pastors sin, you sin, all of that. Not naive. But this is, rather than the instinct of, of, of oh, he changed his plans, therefore. <laughs> he must have been insincere when he made them the first time. He must not be following the will of God when he made them the first time. But no, to say, well, I bet he has a good reason. And I bet the good reason is that he's going to do something better for us than what he had originally planned to do. That's the, that's the sense of it, really, isn't it? And amazingly, the way that Paul d- defends himself, his innocence, is by way of the testimony of his own conscience. Now, contrary to the great philosopher Jiminy Cricket, I know that my conscience isn't always my best guide. Only a conscience that's been transformed by the scripture is a conscience to be followed. And that's Paul's point. He says, for our boast is this. Now, we don't normally think of boasting in a good context. When Paul talks about boasting, he's talking about his confidence 
My confidence is this. This is, this is what I boast in. This is, this is my confidence. This is my assurance. And his assurance, his confidence is in the grace of God. Notice how this sentence plays out. He said, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. He said, my, my confidence, people, isn't that I'm inherently righteous. My confidence, people, isn't in the fact that I can't sin. My confidence is in the fact that God has called me and given his grace to me. And I trust that his grace was so at work in my life when I made these travel plans. Don't you think that Paul's thinking, I'm talking about my travel plans. I mean, really? I mean, if you want to talk to me, I got stuff. Uh, you know, uh, really? But okay. Uh, but, but, but when I made these plans, people, the grace of God was in me at work. And I was making these plans in prayer. And I was making these plans, some of them with tears in my eyes. I was saying, I can't go back to them. I want to go back to them, but I can't go back to them because they need time to work this out. I just sent them a letter. I can't go back right now on the heels of this letter. They need time. They're going to have to read this letter and read this letter. I'm asking them to do I'm asking them to forgive this person who's hurt me, to forgive this person who's hurt them. The person that in my letter, I said that to discipline. Now I'm saying, now you need to forgive that person. And so this is going to be really difficult and they need time to do that. It would be unconscionable for me. It would be wrong of me to go and, 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 and visit them now. I have to change my I mean, that was the sense of it, you see. He says, because, and that was the grace of God. Maybe what he was thinking, I'd love to go blast them. You know, I'd love to go back right now and see the look on their face after they read that letter. (laughs) And he didn't, well, what kept him from that? The grace of God. He said, no, I can't go back. I need to, I need to go and, and wait and hear from Titus. So I'm going to travel to Troas. I'm going to travel over here in Macedonia. And I, hopefully I'll see him. And when I see him, then I'll, I'll get the report. And maybe then I can, which is maybe then I can go back. And, and we can, we can be together in this harmonious, in this harmonious place. You see, I, he did what he did for their good. So his conscience testified. Now the way that he got at his conscience is interesting too. Notice, he says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supreme, supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. In other words, what Paul did to deal with his conscience, to, to, to check his conscience was to see himself in the presence of Jesus at the return of Jesus. And he said, I'm confident that then you'll see it. Because you see, when Jesus returns, and I don't know all the details here, so don't ask me. I don't know how this is really going to play out. But when Jesus returns, everything is revealed. In some sense. Again, I don't know. I'm going to be going like this, I think. And, and, and keep saying, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Okay, however that plays out. But, but, but every, so Paul says, listen, when everything is revealed, you'll say, oh yeah, sorry, Paul. 
Yeah, your motives were good. So if you want to, check your conscience. Check it in the presence of Jesus at his return when everything is, what then, you see? And Paul says, well, then you'll boast. You'll take confidence in what I said. You'll take confidence in all of this. But as Paul works his way through this defense, he grounds his defense of his own life in the faithfulness of God. Notice verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him, and that is why it is through him that we utter our amen uh, to God for his glory. His, His argument goes like this. And I say this with fear and trembling. His argument is, you, you should know that I would never try to deceive you. My motives would never be improper when I'm dealing with you. And you should know that because God is faithful. And we know that God is faithful because he promised in the Old Testament to save his people from their sins. And Jesus has come. In fulfillment of that. And so Jesus is God's yes. Jesus isn't God's maybe. Jesus isn't God's sometimes. Jesus isn't yes today and no tomorrow. Jesus is God's yes. He fulfills all the promises that God has made. That's it. Black and white. No change in that at all. You can trust it. In fact, you did trust it. You said, amen. Now, I remember as a kid, I used to think amen meant you can cough now. Because at the end of every prayer was an amen. At the end of every amen, people would coughed and sneezed and shuffled in their seats. I mean, that's just because you couldn't do that while you were praying. Uh, and so I didn't know what it meant. Then I thought it meant the end, right? What it means is yes. It means so be it. It means that's right. And so, so when we pray in Jesus' name, we say amen to that. We say, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I come to you for the sake of Jesus. I come to you because of Jesus. And, and, and I know all your promises are yes. And so if I prayed according to the promises of God, and I know whether in this life or the life to come, they will, I'll see the fulfillment of that. Because God isn't a God who says no in Jesus. He says yes. He says no in every other One, besides Jesus, if I come to him in my own name, he says no. If I come to him in my own righteousness, he says no. If I come to him trusting in myself, he says no. If I come trusting in any other, he says no. When we come to him in the name of Jesus for the sake of Jesus, he says yes. That's right. These things which are consistent, these promises that I made. So he says, he says, God is faithful. And we know he's faithful because Jesus has come and all his promises are fulfilled in him. And you said amen to that. So 
you realize then, and then notice this, 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 this idea that he makes in the midst of this. That, that not only is that true, but, but you know, it's God who establishes us. God uh, uh, makes his word in us permanent and his presence in us permanent. He establishes us, confirms us in Christ because in Christ he's anointed us. Uh, literally, that's he's Christed us. The word Christ means anointed. That is, he's made us a part of his own family. He's made us a part of this Jesus family community, messianic community, Christ community. So we belong to him. He's anointed us and he has put his seal on us. That means we belong to him. His seal is, is that is that, that uh, signet that has the name of God on it. And so it's pressed upon us, if you will. And he says we belong to him. And um, and he's given us his spirit as a guarantee, as a deposit guarantee. Um, if you're going to purchase a house, uh, you need to put on down payment, if you will. Uh, and you're assessed a down payment that gives the lender confidence that you're good for the rest. And that's the notion of it, right? Um, you're going to purchase something and you're going to pick it up later, pay for it later. You give a deposit and that's the be the indicator that you're good for the rest. He gives us the Holy Spirit now. And he's our guarantee, he's our deposit, if you will, that God is good for the rest, that everything he's promised, all the fulfillment of his promise, the consummation of his kingdom, the restoration of all things, that's, he's good for that, for our utter, complete redemption, because he's now given us his spirit, you see. And so Paul says, oh, that's true. And you gave amen to that, you know that, that's true. And so Paul says, I'm the one who proclaimed this to you. Now here's the link in the logic that makes me shudder. Because he says, in essence, how can I preach that to you and not live it? How can I preach that truth to you and in any way, shape, or form be duplicitous of insincere motives Deceive you in my life. But Paul realized is that this gospel that he proclaimed also shaped him, transformed him into the image of this faithful God, into the image of this true gospel. If this is true, and you've said it is, and I've proclaimed it to you, how could I be false to you? If this gospel is yes, how can I be yes and no? And it transformed him. <clears throat> my uh, maternal grandfather, my mother's father, immigrated to, immigrated to this country in his 20s from England. And he worked as almost everybody did in our little western Pennsylvania town in the steel mill. Uh, it was the U.S. Tube Company, National Tube Company. And uh, 
as I understand it, you can talk to my dad about this afterwards. He knows it better than I do. His father worked there too, and he did for just a little while. Um, but, but they made uh, steel, sheets of steel and, and tubes. That's why it was the tube company. And my, my mom's dad uh, fit pipes, fit tubes. And so he spent 40 years fitting pipe, grabbing these sheets and, and fitting them and moving them down the road, down the line somewhere. I don't know exactly how or what or where. But what was fascinating is when I met my grandfather, I don't remember him being anything other than retired, but his fingers were like this. And if you looked at him, anybody who lived, who worked, who lived there and who knew about the tube company, they knew exactly what he primarily did in his life. Paul senses that what you primarily do, and if it's Jesus, and it should be for all believers, then we should reflect him. And if he is yes, how can we be yes and no? If he's faithful, how can we be unfaithful? And so Paul was just astounded that they would accuse him of this because he says, I, uh, how could that be? I've been fitted, I've been, I've been, I've been doing this gospel and proclaiming it. How can I not be now in his image? If I may rely just very quickly on my theologian friend, uh, James Denny. He says, his, he says, Paul's unspoken assumption is that the character is that character is determined by the main interest of life. That the work to which a man gives his soul will react upon his soul, changing it into its own likeness. As the dyer's hand is subdued to the element it works in, or my grandfather's hands shaped by the tubes, um, so was the whole being of Paul, such is the argument. Submitted to the element in which he was wrought, conformed to it, impregnated by it. And what is that element? It was the gospel concerning God's son, Jesus Christ. Was there any vacillating about what that was? Any equivocal mixture of yes and no there? Far from it. Paul was so certain of what it was that he repeatedly and solemnly anathematized men or angels who would venture to qualify, let alone deny it. There is no mixture of yes and no in Christ. Now because we know ourselves. We know the history of the church. We know that not every. Person who proclaims. Or believes the gospel. Is immediately. or Transformed by it. In such a way that makes them always trustworthy. We know there's sin in the midst of this. Then he goes on to acknowledge that. He said a man may proclaim the true gospel. And his other dealings. Be far from a true man. Experience justifies this reply. And yet it does not invalidate Paul's argument. That argument is good for the case in which it's applied. It might be repeated by a hypocrite. That is a hypocrite say it. But no hypocrite could ever invent it. But such is not the case for Paul that is inventing it. Because the testimony of his life If a man has 10 interests in life, more or less divergent, he may have as many inconsistencies in his behavior. But if he has said with Paul, this one thing I do, and if the one thing which absorbs his very soul is an unceasing testimony to the truth and faithfulness of God, then it is utterly incredible that he should be a false and faithless 
man. The work which claims for him its own with this absolute authority will seal him with its own greatness, its own simplicity and truth. He will not use levity. The things which he purposes, he will not purpose according to the flesh. He'll be guided by the considerations, perpetually varying, except in the points of being all alike selfish. He will not be a yes and no man whom no one can trust. Now we'll have to take up the rest of this later. But this consideration for me and for you has your life, has my life been so shaped by the gospel that we're truthful, faithful people. We've said amen to the gospel and that saying amen to the gospel says, yes, I believe this is true and I I bank on the fact that God is faithful that his yes is yes and that that, that he has said yes in Jesus and so I trust my sins are forgiven. I I trust I've been reconciled with God. I I trust that his righteousness is is upon me. I, I trust that a day will come when I'll see him. I trust that he's at work in me transforming. I trust all of that. Amen. To the promises of God in Jesus. Now the question is. As I look at myself. As you look at yourself. As we look at ourselves. Is this the one thing we do? Is this the one thing. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That molds us. No matter what our profession is. No matter what our vocation is. No matter what. Is this the one thing that molds us? Let's pray, Father. I pray that it is the one thing that molds us, please. I pray, God, that if it isn't that you'll work in me, you'll work in us. The power of the gospel to mold us, to shape us. Into the very likeness of all that the gospel is and stands for. We'd be trustworthy, that we'd be faithful, that we'd be forgiving, that we'd be merciful, that we'd be kind, that we would be loving. All of that the gospel speaks of and to that it would shape us because we're so simple, so single, so sincere. Please, I pray. For those who suffer, I pray particularly. Give grace, I pray, to Dave Corliss and his family and the loss of his mom. And blessings on Debbie Andrew, please. Help her niece, Crystal, for the Ioskis as they move. For Marjorie Miller and others as they combat cancer. For those who are discouraged, for those who are out of work, for those who find themselves in various needs. She would be with them and that we would be a comfort to them. Bring the very comfort with which we have been comforted. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Receive this as God's benediction. Now, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together let us sing.